0: Let me uh, pray for us. Uh, There is a sermon outline that I probably want to draw your attention to that you might want to look at uh, that will actually be helpful uh, as we look at this portion of the Bible. Gracious God, we do want to thank you that you speak in and through your word. We do pray and ask as we look at this fairly short passage that you might be so gracious as to not just give us understanding, but that you might bring it and apply it to our hearts. Amen. Amen. This morning what I want to do with you is uh, really explore uh, the nature of Paul's relationship uh, to the Thessalonian church, uh, which is what chapter 2 is really about. The whole of chapter 2 is really about Paul's relationship uh, to this church in Thessalonica uh, because what he's going to do in chapter 2 is he looks back at his relationship with them, uh, his dealings with them when he was in the city of Thessalonica, which is the the second passage that you heard read for us today. It's effectively what happened when Paul first brought the Christian message, the good news of Jesus, uh, to the city of Thessalonica, and, and it reveals something about uh, how Paul understood Christian ministry, how he understood what it meant to serve the gospel uh, in the lives of the people he first met, uh, and so it's really a passage about the relationship between the gospel worker and the church. Uh, the relationship between the elder and the flock, the relationship between the leader and the people of God. And hopefully, you know, it will glean some insight uh, into what that means for us as a church. And so this is really Paul's reflections. And in your Bibles, you'll notice three things in verse 1 and 2. I'm not going to spend much time in verse 1 and 2. But you notice verse 1 and 2, he says, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. So in other words, he says it's a fruitful visit but he doesn't tell us why it was fruitful until you get to verse 13. Now, we're going to look at verse 13 next week. Uh, Popo is going to look at that passage for us, but the fruitfulness of his time with the Thessalonians doesn't come till verse 13. But you do notice two other things as well. There was strong opposition, uh, right? He says that we were treated outrageously in Philippi, and then we come to Th- Thessalonica, and there was persecution there as well. But in all of this, notice verse 2. But with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. So they made the good news of Jesus known. And so you've got those three things. It was fruitful, it was not without failure. There was strong opposition, but we made the good news of Jesus known. Now, our passage today, right? Very straightforward. Uh, We read from verse 3 to verse 12. Paul then describes his relationship to the Thessalonian Christians, okay? And and what's really surprising is that he describes his relationship to them in familial language, in the language of family. Uh, and we're going to look at this under three headings. Is there in your outline. You'll see it. A ministry of childlike innocence, a ministry of motherly care, and then a ministry of fatherly encouragement. Right, Three things. Childlike innocence, motherly care, fatherly encouragement, which is very surprising uh, in how he speaks of uh, Christian ministry and leadership. So, Here's the first one. In your Bibles, come down to verse 7. We read, instead, we were like young children among you. Now, notice how Paul describes his dealings with them. Like young children among you. Uh, Now, it's not just Paul, right? Because uh, Paul and Silas and others went to the city of Thessalonica. And so Paul and Silas, his dealings with them, he says, were innocent. Without guile or deception, without... Um, malevolent intent. Um, And verse 3 to verse 6 then gives us a picture of this childlike innocence in the way he dealt with them, by way of contrast. So here's the first one, verse 3. "'For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel.' So in other words, he brings the news, the good news of Jesus to them, not from a place of error. That's what he's actually saying. Uh, he speaks the truth of the gospel, not uh, with an impure motive. Uh, there is no duplicity. Uh, in other words, Paul is actually saying in this verse, he's not two-faced in his dealings with them, right? He's not deceptive in his dealings with them. He speaks as one approved by God and trusted with the good news of Jesus, Now, often we don't think much uh, of a statement like that, but if you think very carefully with me, uh, just for a moment, it is very surprising because if Paul has to say this, it tells me that not everyone who is a gospel worker or not everyone who is engaged in ministry or as a leader serving, not everyone does so from a posture of innocence. The fact that Paul has to say that, right? Uh, And we do know from Paul's other letters in Paul's letter to the Philippian church, Philippians chapter 1, uh, many of you are aware he speaks of gospel workers who serve and who preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, who see other gospel workers around them as a threat to the gospel. Uh, one does so out of envy, the other does so out of goodwill. Uh, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul also speaks of those gospel workers who serve others out of selfish ambition. Ministry is more about them than it is about other people. Uh, Paul says their motives are false. And so it is possible, right? Is it possible to serve in a church community with impure motives, manipulating others so that you gain from others, deceiving others as you serve them for self-gain? Is it possible? The answer is absolutely. Absolutely. And Paul, even Paul was conscious of his own heart. Even as he, you know, in his letter to the Corinthian church, even as he challenged the Corinthian church, right, he made it clear that God would be his judge, his judge and their judge. Uh, So one very quick passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 to verse 5. uh, Paul writes this. He says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. When the Lord comes, he will bring it all to light and expose Notice he says, the motives of the heart. God will expose the motives of the heart. And then he says, at that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, that actually tells me that Paul was constantly checking the motives of his heart as he served others, Uh, constantly looking at his heart motivation as he served the gospel, always making sure his conscience was clear in his dealings with people, And he always says, you know, this is what it means to be without guile, blameless, innocent in your relationships. Now, I know that Paul is speaking of his relationship to the Thessalonian Christians. But it does highlight for us the principle of childlike innocence in the way we serve and relate to others. Right? As we relate to others, as we speak to others, as we serve others, It's worth asking, you know, it's always worth asking, does this come from a place of truth, right? Are my motives pure? Am I being deceiving? They're actually really good questions to ask because they're questions of Christian character. Does this come from a place of truth? Are my motives pure? Am I being deceiving? Now, notice the second thing in verse 4 to verse 6. He says, we're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery. Nor that we put on a mask to cover up greed, right? We did desire stuff from you. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, nor from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Notice that even Paul, uh, he wants to see people respond to the good news of Jesus. He's not trying to please them. And so, his primary posture is not people pleaser. He serves only the audience of one, His primary motivation is to please his heavenly father. That's his audience. He only seeks his father's approval. And so if he's not a people pleaser, notice he doesn't use flattery. He doesn't use manipulative words or insincere words because he's not trying to gain their approval. I don't know if you've ever thought of that word, but do you know what flattery is? right? Flattery is... It's excessive and insincere praise that's given to someone to further your own interests, right? It's insincere praise given to someone to get something from them, to gain something from them, okay? And so, take a step back, right? What's the purpose of flattery? It's deception, isn't it, for self-gain. Deceiving someone so that you gain, right? Uh, To get something out of them. And so flattery always uses others so that you gain. There's no love of care for the other. Uh, it always operates from a position of self-interest, uh, whether that means getting someone aside with you, uh, whether that means growing your base of influence or followers, or whether it means getting praise so you boost your own ego or self-worth, or, or, or praise so that you gain some financial advantage. See, and I think it's so significant Paul says this because Guess what, Paul has, guess, if you, if, guess what, it's, it'll, it will surprise you. I mean, he doesn't see it here in the Thessalonian church, but Paul has seen this in all the other churches that he's ministered in, right? Which, which is really a warning to us if we think that we are not prone to flattery, either being recipients of flattery or actually giving it for our own gain, Uh, And so, pause and think with me for a moment. Many of you are aware, I mean, the division in the Corinthian church, 1 and 2 Corinthians. The division in the Corinthian church, where Christians were getting financially taken advantage of, where people were taking sides. Well, it was because people in the church, there were leaders in the church, individuals in the church, who were really, really good with their words. Paul calls it deceptive and smooth words in 2 Corinthians 11. You know, right at the end of Romans 16, which hopefully we'll get to next year, but uh, in your Bibles, you might want to look this one up really quickly. Romans 16 is the last chapter in the book of Romans. Romans 16, verse 17, verse 18. Do you know what is, you know, what's what are Paul's last words to the Roman church? It's so surprising, you know. Romans chapter 16, verse 17, to verse 18. He says in his final words, this is what I want you to watch out for. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and who put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned, that are contrary to the gospel. And he says, you know, such people, keep away from them. Don't be friends with them. Keep them at a distance in your life. And then he says, verse 18, For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites themselves. Right? By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. You see? They speak in ways so that they gain from you. They are manipulative. But Paul says that's not the posture he's taken with the Thessalonian church. He's not serving himself. He's serving the Lord Jesus. He's not a people pleaser. He's not in it for some financial gain. And he never used flattery. That's verse 5. Now, I think that's a big, big claim, isn't it? To never speak or to never serve in a deceptive way to secure some gain, some advantage for yourself. Right? Take a step back and pause, about, pause, pause and think about your workplace, your relationships with people, your ministry perhaps. To never speak or serve in deceptive ways to secure some gain or advantage from others. That's an incredible claim if you think about it. Uh, Paul was always looking at his heart motives as he served the gospel. He was always looking at his heart motives as he ministered to people, right? And I know, speaking of how Paul brings the gospel to the Thessalonians, but again, it does highlight for us the principles of childlike innocence in the way we serve and we in the way we relate to others. Who am I really serving? Are my words motivated by self-gain? Oh, it's worth asking those questions, isn't it? isn't it? So Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians, childlike innocence, that's the first one. But notice uh, a second one, uh, again, verse 7 to verse 10. He also brought the gospel to them, notice, in motherly care. Look at verse 7 to verse 9 with me. I mean, how did Paul and Silas actually care for the Thessalonian Christians? Well, it's there, verse 7. Just as a nursing mother cared for her children, so we cared for you. Like a nursing mother, he cared for them. Now, how does a nursing mother care for her children? Okay. Mums and bubs at the back or in the room next door, mums and bubs here, how do you care for your children? Late night feeding, irregular hours, sacrifice sleep, at the beck and call every time your children cry, constant cleaning and tidying up, always on the go, always preparing food, uh, bottles, always cleaning. And notice... If, you, if you're a mom and you've got you know, infant children, it's exhausting, laborious work, and it's not always exciting. It's absolutely boring, and it's mundane, isn't it? But that's the picture Paul uses when he speaks of his relationship with the Thessalonian church. He cares for them, like children, and that's the image he uses. Now, notice verse 8. He says, in this way, we also cared for you. You see there? Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. We didn't just tell you about the Lord Jesus, we shared our lives with you, okay? Now, when we hear that word, sharing life together, doing life together, we think, well, Paul shared the gospel, and then he spent a lot of one-on-one time with them, drinking lots of latte, right, a lot of meetups, or when we think of sharing our lives with each other, we think of... Oh, we got to do more stuff together, right? You spending more time with me, me spending more time with you, you having me over at you know, your place and me, you know, and me having you over at my place. Oh, we're sharing life together, right? That's how we think of sharing life together. But I want you to read this, these verses very, very carefully because I don't think that's what Paul means. Because this is how Paul and Silas showed his care for them, and this is how uh, they shared their lives with the Thessalonian Christians. Now, verse 9 and verse 10 fills it out. Because this is what it means to share your life with someone, right? This is how much he cared for them. And so, have a look at verse 9. We shared, he says, not just the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. Well, there it is. This is what it means to share your life with someone. This is what it means to care for the people around you. He toiled and experience hardship day and night so that he wouldn't be a burden on the Thessalonians while he, notice, preached the gospel of God to them. And so sharing your life with someone in church community isn't just, isn't just them knowing you and you knowing them over coffee or you having them over your house and them having you over their house as part of it. In fact, that's easy, isn't it? But sharing your life with someone by toiling for them, doing some kind of laborious, exhausting work to serve them that requires some physical effort, well, that's different, isn't it? But Paul says this is how he shared his life with them so that they would get the gospel, so that they would receive the good news, so that they would experience the good news of Jesus in their lives. Well, that's hard, isn't it? Because he's speaking of going out of your way and actually sharing your life because it's serving them. But that's what Paul means when he says he shared his life with them. He was literally giving them his life. He made sacrifices for them. He put aside his rights and comforts so that the Thessalonians would experience the goodness of the gospel in their lives, so that they would benefit, basically, from his ministry. That's actually what it means to care for people. People. That's that's what it means to share your life with someone. Now, if you are at Grace Point, I do want to say this. You are cared for more than you realize. If you're regularly here in our church community, you are actually cared for more than you realize. Um, There are more people here who are and have shared their lives with you more than you realize. You know, often people think that being on the CG roster Coming to set up chairs and then clearing up after is a chore, right? It's not important. Well, it is because that's how we care for each other and that's how we share our lives with each other. Because when we do that, this morning, I don't know which group was here, but this morning the group that came to set up chairs, they were sharing their lives with you so that you might know and receive the goodness of the gospel, uh, it's really, really important for those who are serving and those of you who think it's nothing to come and set up chairs, well, it's a very different posture, isn't it, when you begin to realize that that is how you're sharing with li- your life with others. It's your labor of love. Uh, you know, often here at Grace Point, sometimes people will say to me, oh, you know, I don't think people care for me. I hear that sometimes. And you sort of go, no one's really sharing their life with me. But, you know, I want to say to you, every Sunday, I see people care for you and share their lives with you. The music team that comes early and the sound team that comes early to practice are caring for you and sharing their lives with you. Uh, Dan and Nate and M who stay back to clean up the kitchen and the dining area, who lock up practically every week, are caring for you and sharing their lives with you. Um your children up in Sunday school, well, every week there are people who midweek prepare the lessons, they are sharing their lives with your children. Um, If we understood the Bible rightly, we would have eyes to see how much we are cared for in a church community and how many people are sharing their lives with us right now so that we might receive the goodness of the gospel in our lives. And like a nursing mother who cares for her children, I can tell you this, it's not always exciting. It's not always the most thrilling thing you can be doing. It's laborious, mundane, repetitive, and it's exhausting work. But that's what it means to care and share your life with someone, right? That's why Paul says, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you, okay? Interesting, isn't it? Which is why... If you took a step back and you asked yourself this question, I don't know whether you've thought about this. Do you know what a volunteer is? I don't know whether you do volunteer stuff, you know, outside Grace Point, because you know, in one of our other congregations, we do have people who do that, you know, you know. Actually, we do have people here who volunteer. Who volunteer? Auntie Judy volunteers down at Asheville. She feeds the homeless. Uh, I know we've got some teachers here who actually volunteer to do school scripture, so we do have volunteers. But do you know what a volunteer is? A volunteer is someone who shares their life so that other people benefit. That's what it means to share your life with someone, right? It's not always the meetups and the coffee and stuff like that. That's the easy stuff. That's the fun stuff. But when you have to do the hard stuff that requires effort and time, sacrifice, well... That's what it means to share your life with someone. And so Christian people volunteer and serve because it's an expression of their willingness to share their lives with others so that others come to know and experience the goodness of the gospel. And so Paul says this is what it means to share your life with someone. This is what it means to do it by laying down your life and pouring it out in the service of others. And and what's astounding is that if you look at verse 8, it says that Paul and Silas were delighted to do this. They willingly did it. The idea of being delighted to do this is to to, uh, to commit yourself and bind yourself basically to doing this, right? He bound his life to the Thessalonians. He committed to sharing the gospel and his life with them. And I think it's astounding because Paul did not know this church very well. Uh, he didn't have like a long-standing relationship with them. He wasn't there in Thessalonica for years, but we read that he was. He committed himself to them. To sharing his life with them. Now, this verse is really astounding because if you pause to think about it, and you ask yourself, who would you commit your life to in a church community? You ask yourself right now, who would you commit and bind yourself to in a church community? Who would you pour out your life for? Right? Who would you share your life with? Who would you put aside your rights for? Who would you sacrifice for? Who would you exhaust yourself out for? Now, if we're really, really honest, it's always people we like. People we find lovable. Those who give us something in return, it's always that. It's always conditional. People we think are deserving, who aren't going to disappoint us, which is why it's very unusual for someone to sacrifice for a stranger, versus going out of the way for, you know, someone you don't know, right? Um, versus loving and caring for a friend or a son or daughter, Uh, Paul and Silas hardly knew these people, but they willingly shared their lives with them so that they would actually benefit from the good news of Jesus in their lives. Now, I find it astounding because if we're really honest, we tend to care and love, and we are only willing to be inconvenienced or we go out of our way to serve and sacrifice for only those we like only those we have a pre-existing friendship with. Okay? We are very guarded, aren't we? And we all are. Uh, earn my love, prove yourself to me, make sure you don't disappoint me, make sure that you're deserving, and it's often conditional. And this is why I like the analogy Paul uses, because a nursing mother, right, none of the mums in the back, right, they don't say to their babies or their children, hey, earn my love, prove yourself to me, show me that you're deserving, be a good friend first, then I'll nurse you, then I'll feed you, then I'll clean up, then I'll comfort you, then I'll wake up and tend to your needs. They don't do that, is it? (laughs) It's a very unconditional love, sharing life with your child. Uh, And so I don't know whether you realize this, but just as the gospel is unconditional, and just as the gospel is the ultimate sharing of a life, Jesus shares his life completely for you. He exhausts himself out completely for you. Toil and hardship that he demonstrates at the cross ultimately, that's the same pattern you see in Paul and Silas in the way they dealt with the Thessalonian Christians. They are unconditionally sharing their lives, exhausting themselves out in toil and hardship so that the Thessalonians might receive the goodness of the gospel in their lives. It's the same pattern. Christian ministry works very differently to the way the world works. The world says, we will serve you, we will go out of our way for you, we will work for you if you pay for it, if you're good enough, if you're deserving, right? As many of you here, I know you work in client services, but notice client services are never conditional, uh, are never unconditional, are they? Right? If you work in client services, it's never unconditional, you have to pay for it. Which is why in the world there are always VIP clients and then everyday ordinary clients. Okay, right? You look at Terence is nodding. Right? He works at TikTok. VIP clients and then uh, people like us. We don't pay for anything. Um, you know, we used to have someone at church who was a sales man- manager for Ferrari Australia, um, and you know, um, it was quite exciting actually when we did the men's stuff we'd take the Ferrari out to Sydney Olympic Park and you could have an opportunity to drive the Ferrari. Some of us declined, because some of us, you know, we'd say, hey, what's the excess? I remember saying, hey, what's the excess? And they said, he said, oh, the excess, if you damage the car, 20,000. And I'm like, oh, I'll give it a miss. Someone else can drive the car. But when the Ferrari 458 was actually released in Australia, there was actually an official launch. Only about four or five were released in Australia. You could go and see the car, they wine and dine. There was a wine and dine presentation. Uh, you put your name down if you're interested in the 458 or any other Ferrari, and even though the sales manager for Ferrari was in our church, I still did not make the invite list. You know, I hinted, right? I said, hey, this launch, right? You're the sales manager, right? He goes, no, nah, sorry, man, can't, can't bring you to this one, right? Can't even give you an invite because he says it's VIP clients only, so there's a VIP list. So I never knew that. Right, There's a VIP list for Ferrari Australia, and only those on the VIP list get invited. And then I discovered you cannot you know, if I walk into Ferrari I can't buy a Ferrari because Ferrari is very select in terms of who can and cannot buy a Ferrari, right? And so I said, well how do you get on the list? And he goes, well to get on the list you have to buy a few Ferraris. I go, this is a vicious cycle, isn't it? I can't get on the list, I can't buy a Ferrari, so how do I actually become a VIP client? So Let me say that whether you like it or not, that's how the way you live in works. Your workplaces work like this. Every sphere of life works like this, right? Where some are more deserving, which is why you give more time to them. You do the late nights. You go the extra mile. Service in our world is always rendered to the rich and powerful. Acceptance and favor is only granted to the smart, the strong, the beautiful. Someone who can give something back to you. Life is only shared with the deserving, but notice in God's economy, service is always rendered to the poor, the undeserving, the weak in the world, which is why, you know, the world's paradigm will never work in the church. If you are the type of person who only serve others if you think they deserve it, if you think they need to earn it, if they think, you know, they must never disappoint you for you to give your life for them. Or if you only serve people, if you know them well enough, it means you've never understood the gospel. Uh, In God's economy, life is always shared with the undeserving, the way the Lord Jesus shared His life with you. Because the gospel is unconditional. This is the way of not just Christian leadership. This is also the way of Christian service. This is the way of Christian volunteerism. It's the way of the Christian life of service because this is the way of the gospel. And so, Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians was one of motherly care, unconditional motherly care. Now, notice the thirteen, verse 11. He also brought the gospel to them in fatherly encouragement. See, verse 11. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Childlike innocence, motherly care, fatherly encouragement. Now, I want you to notice Paul's posture. It's, it's so significant he use this. And, you know, if you haven't had a dad or a father who's like Paul, well, you know, Paul and the way he describes God's father love is the father that you should have had. Because I want you to notice Paul's posture. He isn't severe or harsh, is he? He doesn't belittle or crush. He's intentional, proactive, but more than anything else, notice he is involved and engaged. Involved and engaged. Notice the idea of encouraging is to, understand your outline, is to come alongside and to gently push. That's what it means to encourage. The same word is used in chapter 4, verse 1, which we'll eventually get to. We instructed you how to live pleasing God. Now we encourage you, urge you more and more to do this. And so, like a father, he comes alongside his son or daughter, And then he pushes to encourage them along. The idea of comforting is to persuade, right? Not so much to console when you're feeling sad, but to convince you, to reason with you, so you move in a certain direction. And like a father who comes alongside you, he tries to reason and to explain. And the idea of urging is the strongest of those three words, right? It's the idea of insisting. This is the way. This is the best course of action, This path will save you. This road is safest. And so these three words are used of Paul and Silas as he deals with the Thessalonians. This is his fatherly concern, encouraging, persuading, urging them in a particular direction in life. And notice, to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. That is Paul's primary pastoral concern. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because this is a church that's suffering, This is a church that's experiencing opposition and hardship. But in the midst of all of this, notice his primary concern is that they might live a life worthy of the God who has saved them. Right? This was Paul's concern in their circumstances. When he was with them, he came alongside to gently push them to explain and persuade and to urge them to live their lives in response to the good news of Jesus. Now, let me say this to you. This actually teaches us something about caring for people. This teaches us something about caring for each other, right? What we should be encouraging and comforting and urging in others, even when they're struggling. <laughs> right? Your need and my need, when we find ourselves struggling, is for someone to come alongside us to encourage, persuade, and urge us to continue responding and living our lives in response to the gospel, to our Father in heaven who has saved us in His Son, for someone to help me live for the kingdom, even in my circumstances. That was Paul's primary pastoral concern. And I do want you to remember this as you care for each other, as you are confronted by the the sufferings of others, as you see needs around you. Uh, Remember this. You have not got the power, or the ability to change the circumstances in their lives for the people you care for. You have not got control over the suffering or the adversity of the people you care for in a church community. Only God does. But let me tell you what you can do. You have the power and the ability to come alongside them, to encourage them, to persuade them, and to urge them to keep living lives worthy of their Heavenly Father who has saved them in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe, just maybe, the way we should care for people is to stop trying to fix their problems. You know, we try to do that, don't we? Oh, so-and-so is struggling. I've got to work out how to fix their problems. Maybe we should stop trying to fix people's problems, and maybe we should start encouraging, comforting, and urging them to respond to the grace of the gospel in the situation they find themselves in. Maybe that's what we should be doing. You know, I remember saying this before, Uh, sometime back, our greatest need is godliness when we find ourselves in painful and difficult circumstances. Do you know that? Your greatest need, my greatest need is godliness when we find ourselves in really, really tough times. That's our greatest need, right? When are we most prone to sin? When are we most prone to disobedience? It's when life is hard when you're suffering And so our greatest need when life is painful is finding our sufficiency met in the gospel. And what would be more helpful is someone who comes alongside us, who will show us fatherly concern by encouraging us, comforting us, and urging us to live our lives faithfully in response to the good news of Jesus, even in those circumstances. And so if you truly want to care for the people around you in a Christian way, Make sure what you encourage, the direction you're persuading people to take, the path you're urging them to go down, make sure it's shaped by the gospel, kingdom living. That was Paul's fatherly concern, was for people's whole lives to be shaped by their relationship to their heavenly father. Now, if you're a parent, or if you're a parent-to-be, let me say this. Especially if you're a parent, we often want our kids to be successful, don't we? Everyone wants successful kids. Every parent wants that, and, and that's a good thing. But if you read this rightly, you realize that success for your children is not determined by academic achievement. It's not determined by wealth or career or power or influence. Success in the Bible is defined by how one's life is lived, pleasing the God who has saved you in the Lord Jesus Christ, living a life that is actually aligned to the gospel, and I know, you know, parents will do the motherly thing, burn themselves out for their kids, go the extra mile, exhaust themselves out for their children to make sure their children are not inconvenienced, right? Sacrifice to make sure their children's needs are met, they get the best. But I think, you know, this is the area where most Christian parents fail. Encouraging and persuading and urging their children to live a life pleasing and worthy of the God who has saved them. Now, if you are a parent, or maybe you're going to be a parent one day, let me encourage you to pause and ask this question, right? What are your parenting priorities when it comes to your children? What are your parenting priorities when it comes to your children? Because what you encourage, um, what you urge, the direction in which you push is a reflection of your true parenting priorities. And look at Paul's fatherly concern. To live lives worthy of the God who has saved you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's what it means uh, to see Paul's dealings with the Thessalonian church. Three things, childlike innocence, motherly care, fatherly encouragement. What, well, the question I want to ask this morning, what does it mean for us? Okay, so let's try to unpack that a bit. All right, what does it mean for us? It's surprising because the paradigm for serving in Christian ministry for Paul is family. That's the paradigm for serving in leadership is family. Um, which I find fascinating, the innocence of a child without guile, the care of a mother, the encouragement of a father. So uh, right at the end, you notice there's two points of application today. Firstly, let me say it's incredibly countercultural to think of leadership in this way. Okay? Many of you here, you are in the workplace, you're professionals, but if you had to think of the ideal leader, what's the image or picture that comes to mind? Think with me for a moment. All of you are professionals, right? What's the ideal leader? What's the picture that comes to mind? You think entrepreneur. You think visionary. You think CEO. You think the general. You think strategic thinker. Paul is so countercultural because he uses the image of a child, a mother, and a father. Now, imagine with me for a moment a workplace. You can, right? Because you know what bad workplaces look like. But imagine with me for a moment a workplace where those in leadership led without guile or manipulation. A workplace where those in leadership weren't self-absorbed. Uh, where those in leadership worked overtime and went the extra mile for the good of those who worked under them. Where those in leadership encouraged and guided those under them. If you have that sort of workplace, that's great. But I suspect it's a very, very, very rare experience. It might not be your experience of your workplace, but you can certainly imagine it, can't you? Can I say to you that it's not just what you want, it's actually what everyone wants, Christian or not. Can I say that is how Christian men and Christian women lead and exemplify Christ-like leadership in the workplace? You know, you think of Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, to 28, the disciples of Jesus gather, and Jesus actually says to his disciples, right, because, you know, they've got a skewed understanding of leadership, Uh, and Jesus says, you know, if you follow me, he says, you're not to be like the rulers and high officials in the world, because those who lead in the world, they seek to lord it over others. They use their power to make demands. They use their power to have others serve them for gain. And then he says, if you want to pursue greatness, you do it by becoming a servant. And a servant, he says, model after me. He says, whoever wants to be first must be a slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, a ransom for many. Just as the Son of Man came, he says, not to be served, but to serve and to share his life for many. That's the paradigm. Shaped by the grace of the gospel, labor and toil for others as Christ has done for you, seeking the good of others the way Christ has sought your good, carrying the burdens of others the way Christ has carried your burdens all the way to the cross. You see? Now, a passage like this, right, it's speaking of Paul and Silas, their relationship to the church, but it reveals something of a gospel-shaped leader, right? It reveals something about gospel-shaped character, And it's something we can take away, especially for those of us who have responsibility in the workplace. This is the reason why Jesus said the paradigm for Christian leadership is different from the world. If you are a worker and you have responsibility over people, here are some questions for you. What would it look like for you to exercise Christ-like leadership marked by these three things in your workplace? Some of you are pretty senior in your workplace. Childlike innocence motherly care and fatherly encouragement i think it would change your workplace for the good how would that shape your words and your actions in the workplace you can certainly imagine it couldn't you that's what it means to be a gospel shaped man or woman in the workplace secondly it has implications for the way we think of church leadership it's also a paradigm for the way we should be doing church Uh, Many of you are serving in leadership here at Grace Point, and it's worth pausing and asking, right? Because it's meant to get you to look at your personal leadership, right? Is it marked by childlike innocence? Do I promote what is true or light? Uh, Do I minister, you know, um, without guile or manipulation? Do I seek my glory or God's glory, right? Am I trying to please people or I want to please God? Uh, Is it marked by motherly care, right? Do you you know, sharing your life with people around you, honestly, is not always going to be glorious. Okay? But it will mean others around you are going to experience the goodness of the gospel. Remember that. Is there fatherly encouragement? Do you, are you the type of person who comes alongside others to help them move towards godliness? Coming alongside others to encourage others to live in response to the good news of Jesus in their circumstances. If you're a leader at Grace Point, these questions are really worth reflecting on this week. Maybe do it with someone, another leader. What do I need to embrace in my leadership? Is there something missing? Do I, what do I need to embrace? What do I need to be watchful of? What, 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 what am I most prone to that I need to reject? Right? I think they're questions worth reflecting on, especially if you're in leadership. But if you're not in leadership, I think for you it's worth thinking about who are the leaders worth following and listening to, right? Let me also say, some leaders in your life, and you experience that, not just in here, but outside as you meet other Christian leaders, some leaders actually aren't worth following or listening to. Paul made that clear. The beauty of a passage like this is that it also shows us what we need to be, not just avoiding but what we should also be praying for in the life of our leaders. You know, if you're, if you're not in leadership, it's not just about being discerning who you follow, but praying for these qualities in the lives of our leaders. Um, Paul is less concerned about the charisma of a leader. He says very little about gifting, but he sure says a lot about their character, their words, and the manner of their serving. Someone who deals with you with childlike innocence who always promotes and speaks the truth in your life, not trying to manipulate you for gain, not trying to get you on their side. Someone who deals with you with motherly care. You look and you see they don't just teach the Bible, but they're silently and faithfully serving you in other ways that aren't always glorious, but means you receive the goodness of the gospel in your life. Someone who who always comes alongside you in fatherly encouragement, who always points you to the Lord Jesus in your circumstances. Those are the kinds of leaders we need in our lives, but it's also the kinds of leaders we should be praying for in the lives of our leaders here at Grace Point. For men and women who will lead with childlike innocence, motherly care, and fatherly encouragement. So let me encourage you, you know, for you this week, pray for your leaders, that these might be the qualities they would grow into as well. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we do thank you that you speak in and through your word. We look at a passage like this, and for many of us as leaders here at Grace Point, we see how far we fall short. So forgive us, because we don't always lead like this. Forgive us, but grow in us a desire to lead like the Lord Jesus, to have our leadership shaped by the gospel, marked by childlike innocence motherly care, and fatherly encouragement. Help us as well, uh, those of us here who are in positions of leadership in the workplace. Help us to be men and women whose character and leading of the people under us are shaped by the gospel, where we give ourselves to unconditionally serving others by sharing our lives with them. Again, in childlike innocence, motherly care, and fatherly concern. And so today, Father, we bring ourselves to you. Help us see whether we lead or whether we don't, whether we are recipients or whether we give. Help us to be men and women of character, always shaped by the grace of the gospel like Paul and Silas, who model for us what it means to serve the gospel in the lives of others, relating to others the way you would actually relate to us, the way you would serve us in childlike innocence, motherly care, and fatherly encouragement. We do pray that that might be true of us and that you might grow that in our church community. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.